It's too much to tackle in one night. Man and woman, that is. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for our time together tonight. We look forward to climbing into your word. Lord, I pray that tonight we'll see uh, design, purpose. We'll see uh, the beauty of uh, gardening and that we'll appreciate uh, how you made us in the beginning and that we can resonate with that and we can find that place again and pursue that sort of place. Um, I'm just turn this time over tonight confessing that it's not routine or mundane when we're engaging you and engaging your word. And... Um, we just appreciate this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, tonight we're in chapter 2. <clears throat> and we're going to start in verse 4. The first three verses kind of finished up the first week with the Sabbath. And uh, tonight, what I'm hoping to do is to, to go through verse 17, right up until where uh, God makes woman. So let's start with verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant in the field had yet, had, had yet sprung up. For the Lord, Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man being a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in, the, in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. And it is the one that has flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigri, which is, flows out of Assyria. And the fourth is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. <clears throat> All right, let's, let's start with verse 4 tonight. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. I like to, uh, you might notice that I read over, and just to kind of give you a heads up, that's a great study tool. If you want to learn how to study your Bible, read a passage over and over and over and over again. So I, I, I don't mind being redundant because the Bible speaks when you do that. Verse 4, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Uh, another version, New American Standard, says this is the account. There are ten different accounts or ten different references of that in the book of Genesis. Genesis has ten sections that are called toledotes. And the first one is the first chapter. So the second section begins right here in verse 4. And obviously, with a big book like Genesis, you can expect that some of those toledotes are going to be really long. The first one was just really short. But the reason that I'm, I'm pointing that out is because it's a transition now. The first chapter was really, really chronological. 
I mean, the first day, bam, he made this. The second day, bam, he makes this. When he moves to the new Toledot, there's kind of a shift in emphasis. The first day was an emphasis on chron- chronolog- chronology, <laughs> a chronological order of creation, and the fact that he made it. The second chapter, the second Toledot, he's focusing more on purpose for creation. So you're actually going to even see some things that look like they're out of order from the first chapter because the first chapter focuses on chronology. The second chapter, I'm going to introduce a new word, focuses on teleology, teleological emphasis, which addresses purpose and design. Okay, so you'll, you'll see that transition here in a moment. Okay, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Do you see what I'm talking about? About kind of a little switch around in the order. If you were reading this chronologically, then it wouldn't reconcile with the first chapter. What day are the plants made? A little quiz from chapter 1. Third day. Okay, what day is man made? Sixth day. Okay, now right here it's saying, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work in the ground, da 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 goes to verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust. That puts the creation of the man in front of the plants. But don't be troubled over that. Remember, I told you that the emphasis in this chapter is more about purpose. It's not about chronological order. Okay, and I'm going to bring that out here in a moment. When God, now plants, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, there were no plants because there was no man. This chapter is about roles and relationships. More about that than it is about sequence. Okay. Plants were made for man is the emphasis. Okay, plants were made for man. Man had to be there in terms of when we're presenting purpose. Man has to be there to tend to these things. So man is given dominion over these things. So man is, in, in this teleological or purpose-driven chapter, man's got to be created so he's ready, poised to keep it and guard it and work it. Plants were made for man as was the rest of creation. Okay. Does anybody have trouble with that? Anybody struggling with that thought? It's kind of weird because our Western minds are so chronological and compartmental. But the people that wrote these, this, bo- this book, Moses, that sort of mindset is not chronological. Now, there are occasions where 600,000 men, you know, it might say 600,000 men went into combat, went into battle. 600,000 Israelites. You think there were exactly 600,000? Does that mean this is wrong? No, you're getting the point. Okay, it would be like me asking you how much you paid in taxes last year. You may have paid 3000 maybe if you came off good, 3000 and something, and you might have some change. But if you didn't tell me that change, I wouldn't say, oh, you're wrong, you're lying to me. Okay, our literal minds, you, we need to be careful not posing our Western minds on the mindset of this. This second chapter is about purpose. Okay, there's a mist that is... Um, that is watering, uh, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. That's a byproduct of what we talked about, this earth being kind of like a big terrarium, a big greenhouse. And um, 
that mist is, um, you, you could imagine, would be associated with a real green and lush, humid sort of environment. Okay? Now, man, Adam, is formed. Man is formed using the same word that's used for forming man in other places. Keep your finger in Genesis and turn to Job chapter 10. Verse 8. Verse 8 says, Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Turn over to Psalm chapter 139. That may be a more familiar passage for you. Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed, there it is again, my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So you might think, you might look at your mom and dad and say, hey, you guys are responsible for me being here. And they were really instruments in the whole thing. God created, the same God that created and breathed life into Adam breathes life into every single one of us. And the thing that that I was encouraged about that, uh, or that encouraged me in that, is that there's no such thing as accidental life. Like, oops. You know, you hear people talking about you seeing like a 45-year-old couple, this woman that's pregnant, 50-year-old woman that's pregnant. You're like, oh, that's an oops. And there's no such thing as an oops because God creates life, ultimately. We have a, a friend that, um, whose baby, she was carrying the baby, had uh, spina bifida or something like that. And um, she was still carrying the baby, hadn't had the baby yet, but they could tell from from the, the exams, that, that she was not um, what we would call whole. <laughs> and I encouraged her. This was after Evan and Luke were born, and who are visually impaired. Most of y'all know that. And I, um, I encouraged her. I said, hey, listen, just trust God. He's on his throne. He doesn't make mistakes. And she came back at me and said, God didn't do this. And I was thinking about that. I didn't have a chance to really develop this with her. But I think God did, and I think God has a design. He knits us together in the womb. He doesn't make mistakes. And there may be some reflections there of fallenness or living in a fallen world where things may pop up, but nothing happens. You know, God told Moses, says, who makes man mute or blind or deaf? Is it not I, the Lord? You know, so God, God knows what he's doing. There's no such thing as an accidental life. And... Um, just as much emphasis as he puts on creating Adam, we should be looking at our lives that are surrounding us also. He makes Adam from what? Just to make sure y'all are dust, and what else? Breath, breath of the Holy Spirit, okay? That's an encouragement for me because I think about sometimes when I'm sitting counseling with someone or trying to encourage someone, it looks like a marriage is just completely dead, dust, that God can breathe new life into that. That's a devotional thought, but it's one that I enjoy and I appreciate because he can breathe new life into a church. He can breathe new life into a family. He can breathe new life into a man that looks about as dead and as dusty as could possibly be. The same God that breathed life into Adam can breathe life into that person. Okay, man is formed for what? 
Look at the passage. Look at verse 5. To work the ground. Man was formed to work the ground. I mentioned this Sunday morning that man was first a gardener. He was charged with ruling the ground and cultivating the ground. And just the thought that man was made for work is something that I've just been, and work, the specific kind of work is gardening, I've been chewing on these last couple of weeks. And I thought we'd spend the next few minutes just kind of describing the good gardener. Let's, let's throw out some things that, those of you that either tend to your garden, you can describe yourself, you don't have to say that, but you may know somebody that has a beautiful garden, and um, there's going to guarantee there's going to be a great gardener behind that. So what are some characteristics of a great gardener? Consistent, okay, good. What else? Patient, good, okay. What is that? Protective, that's good. I didn't, didn't think of that one. That's a good one, though. Okay. Knowledgeable, okay. Knowledgeable and seeking knowledge. Absolutely, good. What else? What are some other words? They may be of... They may have already kind of been addressed, but words that may be in your mind that you think might be a shade of, what is that? Diligent, Diligent? okay, good. Faithful would be another one, kind of a shade of that. Tireless, good. Okay, nurturing. Good. Y'all have uh, brought up a couple I didn't think of, and I had a couple weeks to chew on this. Daily, that's kind of a weird thing. To, that, that person is daily. Good gardening is daily. <laughs> it's not something you do once and then you leave or you come back to every couple months or so. Invested, Invested? yeah, good. Has some, has some ownership there and some commitment. Something that might be behind that also is a picture of vision. That gardener has a vision of what's in store that may not even be materializing in front of them yet. And they may realize that it may be months and in some cases years before they're seeing that thing really materialize. And that's, that's kind of neat to think about. They, um, here's some, some other ones that I thought of. Uh, is they're not driven by the dramatic and the sensational? Gardening is not about drama. Garden is not about these, um, uh, it's not exciting. Is it? I mean, really, if you think about it, it's not well, you know, somebody gave us a uh, zucchini that's this big that they grew in their yard that I was pretty excited about because I'm, I'm totally into vegetables now. But uh, for the most part, <laughs> for the most part, gardening is not the most exciting thing that you would think about. Uh, some other things that I included was while they're devoted uh, to doing the work themselves, they're looking to the heavens for rain, sun, or for the contrary, storms, ice. You know, they're really conscious about uh, God's involvement in their garden. Something else I think that's true of gardeners is they enjoy company. Most gardeners I don't see as having like a parade through their garden, but, the, you know, the, kind of the attitude of a gardener is I've got a few close friends, and I want those close friends to enjoy my garden, and I want to enjoy my friends in my garden. Just some thoughts that I made or some notes that I made in regards to some of these things that have to do with the Christian walk. I think we can learn a lot from the gardener. If we were made to be gardeners in the front end, 
And if through the work of Christ we essentially are, are kind of uh, escorted back into the garden, then we're escorted back into that sort of role, that, that dailiness, that faithfulness, that not driven by the dramatic, not needing to see things happen overnight, driven by not what we see necessarily, but driven by faith. When you think about some of the elements of good gardening and how that transports or translates into the Christian faith, they're patient. Beautiful gardens take years to grow. And a gardener-like journey of faith or gardener-like faithfulness takes years and is found and wrought in the dailiness of engagement in those things. Nothing grows overnight except what? Weeds. Exactly. Anybody this garden know exactly what I'm talking about. The, the beauty doesn't grow overnight, but the weeds do. And you think about that, man. You, you, okay, I'm going to plant this beautiful garden, and then you walk away from it a few days. The same can be true of the journey of faith. I'm going to make this step of obedience, and then you don't tend to it. And then you come back, and it's grown over with weeds. And, man, you're like, golly, why did I bother in the first place? Now I'm just disgusted. <laughs> you know, I, not only do I not have a garden, but I've got a jungle. And now I'm madder than a hen over the whole thing. The picture of the gardener that enjoys the company of a few close friends, the picture of accountability. You know, that believers should want to escort people into their lives, um, should want to be known, and should want to know. And the accountability, thinking about the gardener hustling around to tend to their garden before their friends come over, that mindset that, hey, ooh, there's a weed. Let me pull that because my friend's coming over and we're going to hang out. And it's just a consciousness of, hey, we're members of one another, and I want to tend to myself and tend and even encourage, you know, so there may be times where you go over to a friend's house to see their garden, and you may, hey, I'm going to grab this weed for you. You know, that kind of picture that, hey, I'm walking with you in your garden, and I'm going to tend to it with you. I think we could just really bathe in all the images of gardening. Here are a few more thoughts of that. Cultivating the ground is useful for understanding the aspects of life. There are decisions to be made about soil choice, sunlight, depth of planting, those sort of decisions, fertilizer, and the work involved in keeping the weeds out is a lot like life. There's a regularity in tending to it that's critical for it to succeed. There are bugs and worms and lots of problems that are fighting against you every single day as you pursue faithfulness and commitment. And there's a dependence on God every single day for sun, water, nourishment, recognizing that there's something outside of you that's essential. It's a lot like parenting. I mean, there's so many things that we can learn from this picture of the gardener if we'll just sit and think about it. I'm thinking of second generation gardener. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. This picture of gardening is a lot like parenting. You know, that parenting doesn't happen overnight. Raising little children that are hungry for Christ doesn't happen with one decision or one conversation. It's got to be a daily tending and a daily um, daily event. Just like leading an office full of people. Anybody that supervises knows that when you Anybody that's in a leadership and management position knows that when you tell people to do something, that the biggest part of the job happens next. It's called supervision. And the supervision needs to be gentle, but it needs to be persistent, and it needs to be daily. And in the absence of it, 
you're going to find out that it's not getting done at all. You're going to find that there's a jungle right there in your office because your staff's not falling through. Just like dealing with sin, we can learn from the gardener. Just a few weeks away, and then we'll find that man's sin, <laughs> the weeds and the fungus and the, the mites and the parasites, not parasites necessarily, but the bugs have come. Just like leading a church, the shepherding as, a, as an elder is a lot like gardening. I was so disgusted when I first began preaching with the fact that we were not changing dramatically on a single Sunday. I had these visions of, of just this unbelievable... Chad, or, uh, Brad and I had so many conversations about this where I just expected to see dramatic movement from a single sermon. And the Lord showed me that over time that growing a people doesn't happen overnight. And shepherding a people that have depth and roots and affection and adoration for Christ doesn't happen in a single sermon either. Any more than the gardener's garden happens in a single planting. But that it takes time and it takes consistency. And this is a lot like leading a family also. If we understand this, this sort of picture of the gardener, then it tells us so much about life that life is about work. We were made for work. <laughs> That's kind of a bummer to us because I think that, that we might have this picture that heaven is going to be um, flowery beds of ease, but I think he's going to put us to work. I think it's going to be a little bit different working in an environment where the creation is not fighting back where we're not dealing with, um, what's the second law of thermodynamics? Entropy, entropy exactly. Entropy is, it, if you all know what entropy is, straighten your office up or straighten your desk up at your, at your house or straighten your kitchen up and watch what happens if you leave it alone over the course of a week. It, it, it goes from a higher state of order to a lower state of order, naturally. That's entropy. And that's, that is fighting back at us all day long. Our bodies are decaying all day long, the instrument of work. So imagining work in an environment that's free of entropy, that's free of of, a creation that's fighting back, is hard to imagine. But these things are true about our work here. There's no miracle grow. There's a dailiness and a faithfulness that's got to be there. There's also no autopilot. You can't put autopilot, you can't push the button autopilot and then snooze. Just like in a marriage, you, you push autopilot and you're going to wake up and the thing is just crashing to earth. And the same is true of the journey of faith. And there's also no Kimlon. Does anybody use Kimlon? Would anybody confess to using Kimlon? Does anybody know who they are? You hire them, they come treat your yard. You know the guys that have Kimlon because their yard is just like carpet and you never see them in their yard. How do you do that? You can't hire somebody to do this for you. You can't hire somebody to tend to your garden. It's got to be something that you do yourself. The, the thing that has encouraged me about the work thing is that if you have this feeling that, man, my life is just feels like one step forward, two steps back, and I'm ready for this to end, and I'm hoping that at some point I'll get to a place where this will not be like this. I've worked so hard today to get my kids to do what I wanted. I've worked so hard to get my staff to do what I wanted, to get my people to do what I wanted, to get myself to do what I wanted. That's what we're made for. We're not going to get a break from that. We were made for that. So somehow just knowing that gives you and encourages you to say, okay, well, I was made for this. And I can actually do this and worship. Instead of doing this and saying, man, I'm going to worship God as soon as this finishes. (laughs) When you realize you were made for it, then you go, oh, I need to worship God in this. 
in this dailiness and in this grind that we feel like we're so suffering from, that is where, that's the soil of worship right there. So I encourage you all to see that. Keep your finger in Genesis and look over in Ecclesiastes. This has been a, kind of a little tangent on work just from the fact that Adam was created as a, a gardener. Man was created to garden. But it's one that's worth, a little tangent that's worth going on. I'll just share a couple of passages with you. Ecclesiastes 2.24. This is on page 554 of your pew Bible. It says, There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. So the thing that we're so looking for a break from, which is nothing wrong with a break, but looking so forward to retirement or something like that. You know, I'm not anti-retirement. I just, I don't see a real biblical principle for it, biblical picture of retirement. I Really, I see a biblical picture of work. <laughs> you work till he calls you home and that you enjoy it as you do. And you work in your family, you work as a parent, you work as a grandparent, you work as a husband, you work as a wife. It's all work. And it's all good because we were made for that. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? One other passage, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. I, have, um, I heard someone mentioning this passage on the radio. And when I heard it, I, was, I nearly drove off the road. It's one that I've read before but just not paid attention to. But I nearly uh, went off on the, the uh, side of the road trying to record this passage. Christy and I were on our way to Salado to find ourselves. You ever, anybody ever been to Salado? They have these signs everywhere that say, find yourself in Salado. We went to Salado, and there's nothing else there, so we found ourselves. We were like, man, here we are. <laughs> nothing in the way of it, that, you know. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. <laughs> so people that are sitting around mooching off their family are, who are able-bodied and not, not um, engaging, working, what we're made for, that, that's, that's a pretty serious challenge right there. He's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There's a trend in young men that I'm seeing that I'm... Uh, the reason I wanted to remember where that verse was is because I want to be biblically prepared to encourage young men to not be moochers, living at home with mommy. Able-bodied young men, 20, 30 years old, living at home with mommy. And I just don't get that. That's, that's, and professing Christ, that doesn't reconcile. Man was made for work, and the work is a lot like gardening. It's hard daily work. Now, one of the cool things about the work and what man was made for, man was made for cultivation, for working the ground. And cultivation leads to worship. Think about some of the things that have to be cultivated and grown. Some of the things that are byproducts of something that's cultivated and grown is bread and wine are byproducts of things that happen from someone cultivating the ground and someone working the soil. The elements of the Lord's Supper, bread is a product of wheat and wine is a product of grapes. And those are both a product of work. That worship in some cool way is a product of work. And um, 
That's encouragement. Something else, too, that you'll see throughout this, especially in the Old Testament, but also in the New, is uh, that plants are analogous. This picture of man working the ground and tending to the plants, and that plants are analogous to society, people, believers, the church, the kingdom of God, and even Christ. You know, the fig tree was a picture of Israel. Um, The burning bush was a picture of Israel. The tree beside streams of water in Psalms 1 is a, someone who delights in the law, is a picture of the faithful. The vine is a picture of what? John 15. Yeah, and also the church. Okay, so this, this, this picture, this imagery, this images that we're climbing into and the tasking for Adam, if we take the, the um, use it as a legend to interpret everything else, then things start to make sense. We were made for this. We were created for this sort of work. Man is working in and on these things. He's tending to them, and he's working them. And in, in the uh, third chapter, when you get the curse, essentially, of uh, the sin and the fall, uh, the curse is all about gardening, too. Because what fights back or what grows up in the ground? Thorns and thistles. Exactly. And the earth starts to fight back. They grow out of the soil of society. Okay, let's look at verse 8. We'll go all the way through verse 14. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord, made, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, or Tigri, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Okay, Eden, I, this was something that was new to me. Eden was actually a region. Okay, the garden was something that was in Eden. It was not the garden of Eden. It was a garden in Eden. And the garden was actually east in this land of Eden. Eden was on a high mountain or raised up area. And uh, the fact that all these rivers are flowing out of Eden tells us that it was a, you know, it was, was one below sea level. It was a high mountain, which you see a lot of pictures of the mountain. God connects and resonates with mountains. Um, you know, Abraham offers Isaac or nearly offers Isaac on the same place where Christ is crucified on Golgotha on a high place. Jerusalem was on a high place. Um, the Ten Commandments came on a, on a mountain and, uh, in Sinai. So the mountain picture is important. Eden means pleasure and delight. In the Greek, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's translated, or what, let me, let me just quit. You wouldn't know this, but you may be able to guess it. What do you think it might be translated as? And, and the, you know, a lot of our Greek, or a lot of words that we use are actually Greek derivatives, so give it a shot. It starts with a P. Give you that. Paradise. Okay. The Greek word is paradisos. And when Jesus, I was thinking about this, when Jesus turns to the thief and he says on the cross, and he says, you're going to be with me today in paradise, is he saying, you're going to be with me in Eden? Or is he saying, you're going to be with me wherever I am? Essentially, paradise is wherever God is. 
So that's, um, we need to understand that, that uh, paradise should be defined as kind of a moving location, depending on where, wherever Christ is. But at least in this case, Eden was the first place. We should let this mean um, that Eden, this picture of Eden being paradise, that it was a place for fellowship with God and man. Because when Jesus turns to him and says, you're going to be with me in paradise, says, you're going to be with me, essentially. So Eden was a place, the garden specifically, was a place of fellowship with God and man. And so heaven will be Eden-like in that we will be living with God. Man is placed in this garden, which is a picture of man being placed for fellowship. If paradise is a place where God and man are together, this is a place where, God, where man was placed with a purpose and an intentionality to fellowship with God. Some cool things that we're going to see in Eden later on in Genesis, or at least in the first five books, especially in Leviticus, um, as you see the tabernacle being built, built and then the temple being built, like in Ezekiel and places like that, you're going to see details and uh, fixtures that you've seen in Eden already. Because Eden is where God lives, and the tabernacle and the te- temple, or it's not where God lives, but it's where God visits with man. Okay, so the tabernacle is where God visits with man, and the temple is where God visits with man. And we are what? the temple of the Holy Spirit, where God visits with man. But some things that you see in Eden, you're going to see in the tabernacle and the temple. Okay, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Okay, first of all, I want to just kind of point out that Eden, the word there for Eden, is feminine. Okay, so a few other things that were feminine. Jerusalem was feminine. Adama, which is the ground, is feminine. And one of the cool pictures here for Adam, or the man, being placed in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, is that Eden is analogous to a wife. You want to know how a man should take care of his wife? He should work or serve, that's the word there, serve her and keep her, which is also the word for guard. He should serve her and keep her. We can learn a lot from what Adam was designed to do in the garden. Now, first of all, working it. Working is equal to dressing the garden, which is equal to serving the garden. A lot of the language here that's used for, for working it and serving it was also the language that's used for a good king. So this is kind of the kingly role of Adam. There's a priestly role we're going to look at in a minute, but the kingly role of Adam is to be a servant. Dominion comes from service. Keep your finger in Genesis and look over at Mark chapter 10. We think of a king as sitting on his throne and bossing people around, but the kingly work and its ideal... Uh, place is going to be like this. Mark chapter 10, verse 43. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
this picture that we're seeing in Adam is the first glimpse of what real dominion looks like. And it's tending to, it's, it's serving this garden. In a lot of ways, it's like the role of the elders in the church. The role of the elders in the church is to tend to the garden of the church. We serve up fertilizer in some cases. We serve up nourishment week by week and teaching and preaching. Uh, we serve up rain, sunlight, and really they're kind of pictures of the whole complement, the whole gamut of God's messages through the leadership of His church to where He shepherds His people and where He uh, leads His people and we are to come alongside and walk alongside these people as we obey or as, as people obey. The king is equated with the shepherd. Okay, what, what does the king carry? He carries a, uh, a staff. The shepherd carries a staff. The picture of the king being wise is like the picture of Adam naming things. The picture of Adam acquiring wisdom where God tells him not only what he's going to eat, but what, what the other animals are to eat. His first picture of acquiring wisdom. And he's going to understand the garden through what God shares with him. And he's going to understand essentially the plants like the shepherd knows his sheep and like the elder knows his people and like the father knows his family. Those are all pictures of serving our garden, so to speak. And the other thing that he does is he keeps it. That's a picture of guarding the garden. This is the priestly task. The first one was the kingly task. This is the priestly task. This is like the picture in Ezekiel where the priests are given the charge to measure the temple Measurement is not just a picture of ownership, but it's also a picture of protection. And the priestly role in this garden is to measure, essentially, this garden. Not only are you to, to work it, but you're to keep it and protect it and to guard it. You're to judge it, essentially, and to evaluate it. Man fails in his priestly task of guarding the garden in chapter 3, doesn't he? Because he lets Satan creep in there and lie to Eden. And he lets Eden succumb. Let me turn, keep your finger in Genesis and turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. Begin in verse 11. I'm not sure how far we'll read. We'll just see if we can read far enough to capture where I'm going. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Who does that sound like that's talking about? Satan? Who else is that talking about? It's talking about man also. All these things that man, I mean, this is describing man. You were anointed guardian, cherub. I placed you, 
I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out, of your, out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you into ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. Now, there's certainly an allusion there to Satan, but that's also kind of the picture of addressing what happened to man as, in some ways, the guardian of the uh, garden. Man is supposed to guard the garden, and man is kicked out just like the cherub was kicked out right here. And cherubim are given guard of the garden. What did he do? He had cherubim with their sword standing at the entrance to the garden, guarding the entrance. So the cherubim kind of took the job of man because man failed so horribly in this priestly task of guarding and keeping the garden. And again, kind of tying into the tabernacle and the temple, you're going to see cherubim all over the insides of the tabernacle and temple and also over the altar. Man lost this role in the fall, but it's restored to us in Christ. We become the priest again. Does that sound familiar? We lost our priestly role, but we become the priest again through the work of Christ. In fact, we become a nation of priests. And in the work of Christ, the cherubim are looking for a new job. We don't need the cherubim to guard the garden anymore because we're back to garden it again. And in some ways, well, let, me, let me just throw this out there. I mentioned the role of the elder in regards to the kingly task. What role would the elder have in regards to the priestly task? given this picture right here. What's the garden? The people of God, the church. Exactly. So what role does the elder have in guarding the garden? I think it's a small thing whenever we meet with y'all to talk about membership. I know it's casual. A lot of times it's over a meal. A lot of times we're hanging out. We're laughing and getting to know each other. But also what we're doing is we're doing what we're charged to do is protect this body and not escort someone in here who, sh- who should not be a member of this body. That, uh, Paul promised Timothy that it would happen. In four years, it's happened to us before. And there have been occasions where y'all don't even know things that you've been guarded from or protected from. It's part of the role of the elder to guard the garden. Another instrument of that is something that we've been part of just recently. What is that? Church discipline. It's not fun. We don't like the thought of it. But we are, again, we are guarding the garden. The, the letters in the book of Revelation, in the first three chapters, specifically the second and third chapter in the book of Revelation, are letters written to the messengers of the churches in uh, the book of Revelation, in all over the, kind of scattered all over the Roman Empire. And there's kind of a gamut there. There's kind of a continuum of the charges that are leveled against the messengers of those churches. And some of them are, you are not keeping clean the garden, essentially. You're not doing what you are tasked with doing. And then in other cases, it's you're doing what I tasked you with doing. You're doing a good job. And then in other cases, it's kind of the picture they were doing it, but maybe not doing it lovingly, like in Ephesus. So the hard part is to do something like this, doing love, do it lovingly and do it truthfully, and do it consistently.
Let's go back to Genesis. Let's look in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, did Adam drop dead that day? And Eve? Did they? Not physically. How did they die that day? Because they died that day. Exactly. The moment that man is separated from close fellowship and communion with God, you die spiritually. So they certainly died that day spiritually when they were evicted from the garden to be essentially cut off from the tree of life. And some of those consequences were they started, things started happening like sickness. They started taking on sickness. They started decaying and death started happening as a result of being evicted from the garden and dying spiritually. The next step later was dying physically. There's two trees in the middle of the garden. The command was to eat from any of the trees in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam, if he had been wise, would have eaten from the tree of life. Keep your finger in in Genesis and look over at Revelation chapter 2. If he had been smart, he would have eaten from the tree of life. Thankfully, he didn't. It's actually, I'm going to show you in a minute that it's God's protection that he didn't. This is to the church at Ephesus. The last verse there in their letter, verse uh, 7 of chapter 2, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Adam didn't do it the first time around, and we haven't had an opportunity to do it since then. But to the one who conquers, to the Nikao, that's not talking about somebody who's going into battle. That's talking about just the believers. It's talking about you and me. To the one who are the Nikao, the overcomer, we will, be, we will have the opportunity to eat from the tree of life again. Essentially, Adam's choice was, will he take from the tree of life, which he didn't, or will he take from the other tree the knowledge of good and evil, which is really the tree of office is what that's called. It's called the tree of office. And essentially, by taking of the tree of office, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to take life, instead of taking it by the fruit of the tree of life, to take it by essentially storming heaven in pride and saying, no, I'm going to take it my way. That's essentially what Adam did when he took from this tree. It may not have seemed to be that volitional, but that's essentially what took place when he took what God said and he said, no, I'll pass. I think I'll do what Eve says. And where Eve, instead of taking what God says, no, I think I'll do what the serpent says. Okay, the tree of life. Look in um, chapter 3, verse 22 of Genesis. We're back in Genesis. I want to talk briefly about the tree of life and then a couple of thoughts about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life, the fruit of the tree of life has the power to give eternal life and to supply man essentially with perpetual earthly life. Okay, verse 22 of chapter 3 says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he evicted him from the garden. This is a picture of grace right here. This is one of the first most wonderful pictures of grace in Genesis, at least initially. It was God's grace for him to evict man from the garden so that man wouldn't then walk over and eat from the tree of life and then to be perpetually in a state of decay forever. Think about that. 
It was grace that He evicted us from the garden. If Adam had continued to have access to the tree of life, and if he had taken of the tree of life, he would be in a perpetual state of decay. He had to lose his first earthly life. It's grace that we die. We have to lose our first earthly life to gain new life. If Adam had eaten this after the fall, death and resurrection would not have been possible. So it's God's grace writing from the very beginning. And God's grace actually in the punishment, God's grace shows up. Now the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is mentioned before this is the tree of office. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. First Kings chapter three. <clears throat> Let's start in um, verse three. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and, and God said, Ask what, what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you've kept him for this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on the throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I'm but a little child and I do not know how to go go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for, for multitude. Listen to what he asks for. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? This is how Adam should have gone about it. There was a probationary period in the garden. And the probationary period would have been eat from any tree in the garden except for that one tree. And then at some point, whenever you're wise, whenever you're ready, whenever you've matured, whenever you've earned it, you can take from that tree. But man didn't go that route. We don't have to earn to eat from the tree of life because Christ earned that. But in terms of earning, we have to earn to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but we didn't go about it that way. Solomon asked for it. And he represents what man was supposed to do. He wants to discern between good and evil, and God rewards him for asking. He doesn't take. He asks for it. And then right after that is the case of the two harlots that come to him with a baby, where one says, oh, it's my baby. The other one says, no, it's the other baby. Or no, it's my baby. And then he says, okay, cut the baby in half. And the real mama says, no. He finds out who the real mama is. He shows right there that he has been given wisdom and that wisdom is a precondition for judging good and evil. Okay, The taking up of the office to judge good and evil is something that was granted to him at that point because he had asked for it. The office bearer in the Bible is called a god. Okay, What did, what did God say whenever, um, or what did Satan say to Eve? You will be like God. And then God says in chapter 3, he says, Behold, man has become like one of us. It's because he's taken office, but he's taken it wrongfully. Okay? Office is a function of wisdom and age. It comes at the end, not at the beginning. The office bearer is to be an elder, to have acquired wisdom through experience. And Adam, unfortunately, didn't take it that way. He took it by force. 
this probationary period for access to this tree is a picture that life is not earned, but knowledge of good and evil is to be earned over time. Next week, we're going to make woman, starting in verse 18. And I think we'll probably go through the, um, through the rest of chapter 2. And I think we'll probably spend all Wednesday, all next Wednesday, making woman. We'll see. Does anybody have any questions or thoughts about tonight, what we've gone over? You know, I was thinking about that because there's gardening would be very different without decay. A good part of gardening for us is taking decay, essentially fertilizer, which is dying organic material, and placing it in plants and fighting against my or not mites. I keep wanting to go to critters, uh, fighting against fungus and bugs that eat plants and stuff like that. So I don't know. I can't imagine what work would be like in a decay-free environment. I can't imagine what a garden would be like. I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. I know there's a lot of work naming the animals, but that's we're talking about planting. I, you can imagine. But planting, I don't know. I think that's, that's one of the cool wonders of the new heavens and the new earth is the thought of working in a place where there's no more death and no more crying and no more mourning and no more pain, no more suffering and no more tears. And That's going to be crazy. Where you actually create, well, you don't create anything. But you, of course, you wouldn't even have to fix anything because nothing would be broken. I don't know what you do. I don't know what you do because that's most of our work is fixing broken stuff or making something that needs to be made and then fixing it later when it breaks. I mean, that's really what we do. Or fixing something or making something to compensate for something else being broken. <laughs> it's crazy. I, it's just unfathomable what it's going to be like. It's a good question. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, one thing I can come down to is kids didn't gather trees. Yeah. Today was probably spent enjoying the blessings and the bounty of God. Yeah. And it's probably fellowshipping with God about that. Yeah. Because, you know, the watering was taken care of. Yeah. I mean, all the bad stuff that we did to burn wasn't there. Right. And the presenting, maybe, almost kind of a presentation for God. Look what I gathered today, God. How awesome is that? Your, your abundant garden is delivering. Doesn't seem that he was focused. He was so focused on, on Eve and whatever she offered. And Eve was not focused on, on God at all. And through the rest of the Old Testament, there's always a lot of celebration about the harvest. Mm-hmm. A lot of worship time. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading a passage today, or maybe we read it tonight. Who can eat or find enjoyment without him? Yeah, Ecclesiastes. That passage about working and it's good for a man to work and that picture of just gathering and enjoying it. Boy, God, this is good. This is some good fruit. That that may have been the work. It's cool. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah. It seems it seems that he gave the instructions to Adam. And yeah, it seems to be that he gave gave Adam the charge 
And either Adam didn't do a good job of sharing the news with Eve, or she didn't listen, <laughs> which is a possibility. Um, not my Eve. She listens to me. I wasn't implying that. Um, I don't know. But, yeah, it seems like he was. It, it, I think it is a biblical picture, though, of God's relationship with man and father and husband and shepherd. That um, You know, I was talking about that Sunday, the guy that walks in, in Sunday morning worship services that his wife's carrying this old marked-up Bible, and he's, he doesn't even have his Bible, and he's got his hands in pocket. You know, man, who's, who's listening for that family? Thankfully, Mom stepped up, but ideally it's Dad. I think God's made it that way where men are... Does, it's not better. <laughs> it's not like, oh, you're better, man, than woman. It's just it's a different role, but it's a critical role where man needs to be listening. Man needs to be tuned in because man is on the receiving end of that charge from God. So that's a good question. Any other thoughts, questions? Okay, we'll make Isha next week. Let me pray. Lord, thanks for our time together tonight. I pray that uh, you'll find us like the gardener, not driven by the dramatic and the sensational, but just by the consistent dailiness of faithfulness and and uh, being about the things that we need to be about. I pray that we'll be about our ultimate work of enjoying Christ and um, reading on Him and meditating on Him and speaking about Him and singing about Him, encouraging others in Him. I pray that that will take place in our homes. It will take place in our uh, essentially the garden of this people. And, uh, Lord, I pray that it will just spill over into our workplaces and our neighborhoods. We thank you for the time that we've had together tonight in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all. We'll see you next week.